The Hustle was a dance invented back in the 70s, very popular during the disco craze. There was even a big hit song, instrumental version that it was, called The Hustle. And people used to do this fashionable dance to that tune. But that dance has got nothing on the hustle that's being perpetrated on the people of the city of New York this week. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury for National Preview Online. Please subscribe to us in the iTunes App Store, NP Online. Our podcast is done several times a week. We try to do it almost daily, but we're always up here at least three, four times a week. Uh, you can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash National Preview Online, our website, National Preview Online, and we're on Parlor as well. And as always, you can always email us at nationalpreviewonline at gmail.com. So what is happening in New York City? Well, despite all the hype, despite everything promised by Mayor Useless de Blasio about schools opening and blended learning and this and that, we now see that um, the schools are delayed. Now, I had some advance notice that this might be the case that schools might be delayed because of um, a strike. I have a friend who's a New York City public school teacher, and he intimated to me that the union was um, poised for a strike. And in point of fact, it was under the threat of a strike that this delay in opening the school took place. Teachers were originally supposed to go back to school the day after Labor Day, that Tuesday, uh, and they are still going back that day. The students were supposed to come back on the 10th. That's not happening. Everything has been delayed. The students are not coming back until the 16th, and then there'll be three days of orientation, so to speak, with remote learning, followed by um, some sort of platooning, some days at home, some days in school, beginning the following Monday, September 21st. Now, what major development or what major changes are going to be made in this time when they had all of these months to prepare is quite beyond me. But from what I'm told, the union is trying to hang its hat on an obscure piece of information in the New York City Charter, which requires all students attending school to be vaccinated. Now, vaccinations usually refer to bona fide communicable diseases uh, of a type that are not viruses, things like them. Well, maybe they are viruses, but they're not the common cold. Things like the measles, uh, the mumps, chicken pox, you know the, the deal. And I guess the chicken pox would be considered a, a form of uh, the herpes zoster virus. Uh, but the cold is something people get all the time. And this COVID-19 virus seems to be along those lines. In any event, what the city, a union rather, is holding its hat on is that, well, since there is no vaccine for the COVID-19 virus, then students obviously cannot be vaccinated against it. And so since they haven't been vaccinated, uh, you can't compel us uh, to go to school and expose ourselves to these unvaccinated uh, children. Now, this seems like... Um, a attempt at being very clever by the United Federation of Teachers 
and their local union head, Mr. Michael Mulgrew, to avoid having the Taylor Law invoked against them, saying, we're not uh, refusing to go back to work. We just can't be exposed to this, and we're asking the city to enforce this vaccination law. Well, you can't make people get vaccinations when the vaccine hasn't been invented yet. And I don't think people are going to have as much success uh, getting vaccinated or forcibly making people get vaccinated against this COVID-19 virus if a vaccine is developed. I would approach it with a degree of trepidation since I don't know how well it's been tested. There have been certain things that uh, we thought were safe at some point and then after a period of time, um, we've learned that they're not so safe. So why would you want to expose yourself to this potential risk by taking a vaccine that hasn't passed uh, a full muster? But it's more than just this. It's more than just the New York City Union flexing its muscles uh, and, and, and showing a reluctance to go back to work. I wonder if they would be as reluctant if we said to them, well, look, since you don't have to come into the school, since the school doesn't have to be uh, heated and maintained to the same degree, and since you're not uh, uh, incurring any travel costs or anything like that, and you're doing everything from the comfort of your home, uh, then maybe we should reduce your pay proportionately uh, so that you're going to get paid for the job that you are actually doing, not the job that you should be doing. Then I think you'd see a different, um, a different tune coming out of the union. Uh, you might see them be a little bit more wedded to the idea of returning to school. But this is all, again, based, as so many things have been over these past few months, on lies. Lies about the COVID-19 virus. Lies about the lethality of the COVID-19 virus. Now, interestingly, the CDC just uh, released some some information which is most illuminating. There's been approximately 170-some-odd thousand people who have allegedly perished from the COVID-19 virus in the United States since this pandemic began. Now, the COVID-19 virus has been excessively attributed to the deaths of many people. We already knew prior to this release of new information from the CDC that the COVID-19 virus was being credited for deaths uh, uh, of people who, in fact, died of some underlying condition. I've said many times on the show in the past that people could have been admitted to Calvary Hospital in the Bronx, which is a place where people go to get end-of-life care. People who have terminal cancer and are suffering and are in pain, they go to a place like Calvary, and they make you comfortable in your final, final days and weeks, hours. Yet these people are being tested after they've died, obviously from terminal cancer. And if they have the COVID-19 antibodies, their deaths are retroactively being listed as having died from COVID-19. Now, this is a falsehood, but this is done because there is federal aid to the tune of $14,000 and change for every COVID-19 death that takes place in a given state. There is also um, money paid from the, uh, to the states for every person who's intubated because of COVID-19. And as I've said before, this explains why the Javits Center, where uh, President Trump had the army put up a 3,000-bed hospital, received virtually no COVID-19 patients because it was a federal hospital 
uh, run by the Department of Defense, and therefore the state would receive no money for anyone who died there. Pretty sad. Pretty sad when you think that um, people's safety in terms of um, being exposed to COVID-19 was compromised because the state wanted to get money. This is why he made it a point of making nursing homes take all of these patients in the um, nursing homes because he wanted to utilize every bed that he possibly could that was totally went under the purview of the state. So there'd be no question that he would get the full $14,000. Now, Cuomo is a swine, and he should be investigated for this. This is not something that was done uh, on the spur of the moment, like a lot of these law enforcement people are being accused of when they had to react in a high-stress situation instantaneously. This is a man who had all the facts before him, was able to sit in the comfort of his office in his overpaid job at his big desk, and he made a conscious decision to send people to their deaths by infecting nursing homes, which houses a very, very at-risk population, elderly people in various stages of compromised health, and flooding them with COVID-19 patients. So looking at all that, let's get back to how this weighs in with the school system. Well, the CDC, as I said uh, a few moments earlier, has just released information that says of the 178,000, let's round it up, 180,000 people who have perished in the United States from COVID-19, only 9,000, 9,000 out of 180,000 had no comorbidities. That means only 9,000 of the 180,000 could have been deemed to have been in fairly good health at the time they contracted this virus. The overwhelming majority, the other 171,000, all were sick people when they became in infected. Now, we all know that if you already have health problems and you get another disease, your chances of survival are sharply reduced. Many of the people who perish from the regular flu each year do so because of this dynamic. 54 million Americans get the flu every year, and something on the order of 64,000 of them die. You don't hear anything about it. And most of these people are elderly or people in otherwise compromised stages of health. So it isn't like, in reality, when you peel it all away, that this COVID-19 virus represents this unbelievably astronomical risk, as they want you to believe. It simply doesn't. So when you look at that, you have to ask yourself, why should the teachers union be allowed to sit on their ass and still push for this remote learning? Why aren't they being compelled? Why isn't the mayor, like he threatens everybody else, going to go to court and say, you try and pull that nonsense with this vaccine mandate to try and justify escaping the Taylor Law, and I'm going to let you have it with both barrels. I'm going to invoke the Taylor Law on you, and I'm going to fine you two days' pay for every day you're out until you get back at the desk and start teaching these kids. But he doesn't have the courage to do that. I guarantee you he would do it if the New York City PBA called for a strike. He would unhesitatingly visit the full weight of City Hall upon the police officers whom he can't stand, but he won't do it to these teachers who are nothing more than malingerers in this regard. So that's where we are with the New York City hustle 
the New York school opening delay, and the truth about COVID-19 deaths right from the CDC. But let's look at a couple of other stories that have been hitting us. Now, President Trump went to Kenosha, Wisconsin, to visit the area of destruction that has uh, resulted uh, in consequence of these riots uh, over the death of um, Mr. Blake, who was killed by the police uh, in a shooting, Jacob Blake. Now, Mr. Blake is not dead, unlike many of these uh, high-profile police shooting cases that result in, in unrest in the aftermath, but he is paralyzed, and he was shot by a white officer in the back seven times. Now, there's been a lot of misinformation about this shooting. Um, one of the most significant, I had two conversations. I mentioned one last week uh, when I did some information on the show. My brother had called to ask my opinion of this shooting. He said, you know, it was pretty messed up. They shot him seven times in the back. I said, well, he was, there was a knife in the car. There was a weapon in the car he was going for. It. Yeah, but the knife was on the floor of the front seat. He was going for the back seat. And on Sunday, I was at a party, and I met my other brother, and the same subject came up, and he had the same observation, that the, the suspect, Mr. Blake, was going into the back seat, and the knife was in the front seat. And so I showed him the actual video on YouTube. And it clearly shows that Mr. Jacob was going into the front seat, reaching to the floorboard exactly where the knife was. So I don't know if it's because there are doctored videos that are being put out there to deliberately misguide people, or if the news uh, media is deliberately misreporting what door Mr. Blake was getting in, but there seems to be a misinformation uh, gap somewhere, somehow, with this shooting. Now, the only thing I might have done differently than the officer who shot Mr. Blake, I guess putting myself in his position is that if prior to going to that car, if I were satisfied that Mr. Blake had no weapon at that time, had no gun or had no knife on him before I had the opportunity to search him, and he ran for the car, I wouldn't have had my gun in my hand because I'm not worried about having to engage an unarmed man. as other cops around, and uh, I don't feel the need to shoot if a man is unarmed. So I would keep my gun holstered. But the one thing I would not do was let him get near that car or get in that car. Because when somebody is trying to get into a vehicle, go someplace, get away from you, it's because he's either looking to make an escape because he's going to get in the car and take off, maybe run people over in the process, or he's going into the car to get something that he has in that car. Now, in this case, we'll never know if Mr. Jacob was looking to, uh, Mr. Jacob Blake was looking to leave or get the weapon. I would surmise, if I had a guess, that he wasn't looking to leave. He was looking to get the weapon because he didn't enter the car like a man who was looking to sit down and get behind the wheel. He looked like a man who was trying to pick up something off the floor, and that's where the knife was. Well, now, once you've followed him that closely and you've got your gun out, now you can't really use both hands to grab him and pull him away because you have a gun in one hand, and you have to reholster that gun if you expect to be able to use both hands. It might not have been time to do that. Now, if he suddenly grabs that knife and wheels around and slashes you and cuts your jugular vein, you're a dead person. And as I've said before, uh, every person has their limits. Every police officer has their limits. Some people have a higher tolerance. Some people have a lower tolerance. Some people have a higher fear factor. 
Some people have a lower fear factor. When your numbers or buttons are pushed and you get moved beyond that comfort zone, people start panicking, they start shooting. And that finger starts moving very rapidly on that trigger. And I'm sure that officer didn't count seven shots. And I'm sure if you asked him immediately after the shooting how many shots he fired, he probably thought he fired a lot less. Most people, uh, looking over firearms discharge reports provided by the NYPD, which is a very, very good source of information, since they've had a lot of number of shootings over the years just because of the size of the department, it is not at all uncommon. In fact, it's more often than not the case that in a high-stress situation, the officer in the immediate aftermath is not quite sure how many rounds he or she fired because they're, they're firing out of fear, not out of a premeditation. And that's why that happens. So we have this violence now being touched off in the case of, of uh, Mr. Blake shooting. And Trump was there to look at these things. And Democratic officials at the, at the local and state level asked him to stay away, thinking that his presence was going to inflame uh, the conduct. The only people inflaming anything are the Democratic Party, because they're using these cases to try and get people uh, worked up into a frenzy, and they're, they're fomenting a race war here. Now, Trump said something along the lines of what I just said. He said he didn't believe that police violence was systemic. He was saying it was more a matter of some officers choking under pressure. Now, I don't know if choking is the perfect word to use to describe it, but I, I do think I know what the president was trying to intimate. He's trying to say that when these people act uh, in this way, they're not acting because they just feel like shooting people or a cavalier about uh, using deadly physical force. It's because their, their uh, self-preservation instincts have kicked in because their fear factor, their meter has been touched, and so they're, they're reacting by pulling the trigger. I understand exactly what he's saying. So there is another problem here, uh, and that is the question always becomes, do we train the officers well enough? Do we give enough firearms training uh, so that they become more confident in their ability to use a firearm? That, believe it or not, is one of the areas that the New York City Police Department, among others, has cut over the years. Officers spend less time in firearms training uh, now using a more complicated weapon, a semi-automatic pistol, than they did in years gone past when they used a revolver. Now, for a public, a democratic public and a democratic power structure that is always bemoaning the use of firearms by police, you would think you'd want them better trained so that they're less likely to use them. Just because you don't give people exposure to the firearm in the academy for as long a period of time doesn't mean they're less likely to use them. On the contrary, it means they're more likely to use them out of fear because they don't have full confidence in their ability and their talent for being able to use a gun hasn't been fully developed. People who are more confident in their ability to deliver effective fire when it's needed will probably delay delivering that fire until the last possible moment when it's really required. And overall, this might result in in less fatalities, but nobody likes to look into these things because they're really not concerned with solving the problem. They want the issue, so it can always be available. Now, if you solve the problem, then you've eliminated the issue, and then you can't make it an issue in every single blasted election. But while he was there, uh, he was asked other things. 
During the course of these protests, there was a militia of sorts out in the street. Now, there was one young man by the name of Kyle Rittenhouse. He was 17 years old from Illinois. He was charged last week with first-degree intentional homicide and other counts after he opened fire on protesters, killing two people and wounding another. Now, the president on Monday suggested that Mr. Rittenhouse um, acted in self-defense, and someone, I'm trying to think who it was, here, I'm looking in the Wall Street Journal, see if I can find it, um, tried to condemn the pros... Um, condemned the president for not condemning um, Mr. Rittenhouse for his actions. Well, unlike his predecessor, President Obama, I think the president is being very prudent in not weighing in on a pending criminal matter where all the evidence is not in uh, and condemn this man because he is the president of the United States. So when the president says something, uh, it results in in people adopting an opinion. Obama did this in the case of the Trayvon Martin case. He condemned Zimmerman. He did it in St. Louis with Michael Brown, uh, a, a police shooting uh, where the question of officer misconduct was based on a total lie. He never put his hands up and said, don't shoot. I've discussed this before. So why should Trump follow the stupid course set by his predecessor, Mr. Obama? It may turn out that Mr. Rittenhouse is going to be acquitted because apparently there's videotape of one of these men that he's accused of killing trying to hit him in the head with a skateboard and take his gun. Now, hitting people with skateboards is a tactic of Antifa and um, Black Lives Matter, using skateboards against a, uh, a police officer. Why is a skateboard a good weapon? Because it's not a weapon per se, and you really can't be arrested for rolling around on a skateboard, but if you've ever been hit in the head with a skateboard, I think you uh, would believe it's quite deadly. Forgive me there, I forgot to put my phone on mute before I began the podcast. So these are all the things that are happening now as we get into the week. We have school delays based on concerns for a virus that we now know was not as deadly as it was originally said to be. We have none other than the Center for Disease Control admitting this. We have rioting which has taken place in the wake of the shooting of Jacob Blake, a lot of which has misinformation surrounding it. And now the violence is spreading to other cities, much in the same way it did with um, George Floyd. I disregard that's our other line going off. Uh, we found out that George Floyd is a man that has a, a, a drug cocktail on board, and he was high as a kite. So we're, we're following the same pattern. We've seen this before. As I said uh, earlier last week, we've seen this before. Everybody comes out of the gate. Somebody's shot. The optics are such that it makes for good copy to say that the cops were, were bad. It always sounds good to say someone is shot in the back uh, by the police. And what do you have? You have people rioting. You have people looting, and now you have people getting killed because things have gotten out of hand. And we have a democratic power structure that is not willing to do anything about it. They're allowing this to go on. So it's about time that we start asking ourselves, 
what is the proper course of action? Well, I'll tell you the proper course of action. The proper course of action are for these politicians in these blue states to come to terms with the fact that their primary mission is not unseating the President of the United States. Their primary mission should be to serve their constituents. And you serve your constituents by preserving order. You don't allow looting. You don't allow shootings. You don't allow people to rob, beat other people, pull people out of vehicles, beat them down, go into restaurants and intimidate people, surround them because they have a political view different than yours. You do your damn job. I'm talking to you, the mayor of Kenosha. I'm talking to you, the governor of Wisconsin. I'm talking to you, the governor of Oregon, the mayor of Portland. I'm talking to you, the governor of Minnesota. You, the mayor of Minneapolis. I'm talking to you, dumb as a stump, Governor Mario Cuomo. I'm talking to you, know-nothing de Blasio, the mayor of New York City. Grow some cojones, do your job, and bring order back. When you bring order back, you'll see a lot of these other ancillary things don't occur. For National Preview Online, I'm Jamie Dury.